Pottercast is pleased to be sponsored this week by Alavans.com. At Alavans.com, you'll find authentic, solid wood magic wands and broomsticks, as well as a full line of high-quality wizard wear. Keep listening in the show for an announcement during the next break to find out how to get a special Leaky Cauldron community discount at Alavans.com online store. Welcome, welcome to another... Welcome to Pottercast, the official podcast of the Leaky Cauldron. The Leaky Cauldron. The Leaky Cauldron. You hear that, Ern? The Leaky Cauldron. And now, Leaky's own, Melissa and Ellie. Welcome, Potter Posse, to Pottercast 22. We have a really great show today. We're really excited. We're back to our usual format. So this time there are no filths, no call-ins, no muggles. This week in our modcast, we'll talk about anti-heroes and Harry Potter. In our fan interview, our reader Scott will discuss order and chaos in literature and how it relates to the book series. We'll announce a brand new fan segment. And this week, there are there is no mailbag segment, and that's because we've trimmed it off to make room for something we're very proud of, part one of our interview with Arthur Levine, the editor of the American edition of the Harry Potter books. In this piece, we go all the way back to Harry Potter's origins, its publication, and how it made its way across the Atlantic to America. We get the real story straight from the source. It's one of those stories that has been sort of mangled over the years. We also touch upon the changes made in the American editions of books, so be sure to check it out. First, we'll have a word from our sponsor, and then we'll go to Sue for her news, and we'll see you back after that. Bye. Listening to the news? Again? As if a normal boy cares what's on the news. Hello everyone, Sue Upton here with your Harry Potter news recap for you. Last week we told you that author J.K. Rowling had given a new interview that would appear in Tatler magazine. We do now have those scans up on our website, and you can see some brand new gorgeous photos of the author. We also learned in the article that she almost gave away the title to Book 7. We're not sure if it's complete yet, but she said she almost blurted it out to the reporter who was conducting the interview. We also learned that Book 7 will contain some deaths of, quote, both goodies and baddies. Hmm, interesting. We also did get further confirmation that Joe would, in fact, be writing a new children's book when she's calling it a political fairy tale. It is aimed at younger children than those who would read normally Harry Potter. I haven't even told my publisher about this, she said. There's also some short stories that she has written as well. For the scans from this magazine, please click on leakynews.com and you'll be able to find those on our website. We also learned that author J.K. Rowling will be attending a charity fundraising dinner on January 25th in Bucharest, Romania. This is a new fundraiser to help impoverished Eastern European orphanages. And this is part of a new um, event that she's participating in as part of the new EU group that is uh, planning to visit similar orphanages in Romania. Again, we will have more details about this visit that J.K. Rowling will be participating in on January 25th. And in one final book note, congratulations are now in order to Jim Dale. Mr. Dale was named Children's Audiobook Narrator of the Year by Publishers Weekly. Mr. Dale narrates the U.S. editions of the Harry Potter audiobooks. Congratulations, Jim. Turning now to film news, we did get confirmation, official confirmation from Warner Brothers about the Goblet of Fire DVD release date, which, as we first reported, was on March 7th. 
we did see some new uh, cover art to that now, and we did see a new commercial for the new DVD released and posted on our website as well. We learned that there will be some additional scenes and include an interview with Daniel Radcliffe, Rupert Grant, and Emma Watson, as well as some behind-the-scenes featurettes. You can find all the information if you click on Leaky News for that as well. And in other film news, we did hear a bit about Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. They had an open film call for the casting of the part of Luna Lovegood. A reported 15,000 young hopefuls showed up for this part, and you can find some great photos and interviews and even a video clip of these young hopefuls on our website. The casting of the part for Luna Lovegood is expected to come later this month or perhaps next month. Well, there certainly is a lot to get to in this show, so let's get right to it. For the best in Harry Potter news on the web, please be sure to check out our website, which is updated daily. And now, on with the show. Welcome, guys. Pottercast 22. Yoo-hoo! Yay! Yay! 22. 22 of these things. Do you know that if, we're, if we stay on track, our big podcast in, in Las Vegas will be number 50? Ooh, oh the big five O. Wow. The big city. So let's talk about the the news that's going on this week. Sue, so you want to start us off? Oh, well, this the big... With the news. Well, I guess we could talk about um, film news. Lunas. There's tens of thousands of Lunas everywhere out there. Yeah. 15,000 Lunas wannabes for the call, open Blind call. Blind girls. Yeah. 15,000. Can you imagine? Wow. You know, okay. I was looking at the pictures that the BBC put up. Mm-hmm. And I can understand a little leeway, like if you have red hair, you can dye your hair yellow. But there were like Asian people trying out for Luna. <laughs> Do they understand that Luna's not Asian? I'm not like being racist or stereotypical. She's not. She's not Cho. <laughs> I just kept thinking, why? Why? Why do you spend your whole day out there when there's not a chance that they're going to pick you? Well, I think I think um, the guy from DVD Magic or whoever it was at the red carpet said it best when he asked Mike Newell what inspired him to make Cho an Asian girl. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, we got to explain this. We were... <laughs> the the red carpet line for Goblet. And we're standing there next to the Mugglenet kids and this, this guy from some Asian magazine that none of us had ever heard of who was only there for Cho I was getting into a fight Chang. with all of us. He was getting into a Yeah, he was getting into a fight with everybody. Because, it was so funny. Because we all had... Him and Emerson the, almost fought. Yeah, well, we all had the person... And asking the questions in front, the camera person behind. That's what everybody did so that everybody had room. They decided they needed their, their person asking the questions and their cameraman at the front. They were being completely unfair. So much so that when um, Dan came over, Dan's handler looked at me and said, you're, uh, you're standing on the MuggleNet side. I said, I know. I got pushed. <laughs> um, but they kept pushing everybody over. And when they, when Cho Chang, I'm sorry, when David Heyman came up to them, they actually asked David Heyman what inspired them to put an Asian American character in the film. <gasps> no, <laughs> no way. And he's all like, "Oh, you know, it was just you know, some idea I had the other day. I figured no. it'd be nice." No, jo- no, David Heyman was actually very, without even blinking, he just sort of went, "Well, well, actually, it's in the book. Like, not even like, <laughs> how do you not know this?" But he said it so. As if yeah, it was he's the most like, Joe Rowling wrote it, you jackass. <laughs> Did you read the book? You know there's books. Oh, yeah, there's <laughs> little things that come out every so often. Yeah. No, but he's so good. God David forbid Heyman you just... research a little bit before you come out on the red carpet. No, David Heyman is just such a nice guy. He just passed right over it as if it was a natural question. He could totally understand why that person well, would yeah, not they're know. They're probably, probably prepared you know, for about anything. 
you know, I mean, I can understand that some of the media that just some as a media person that people just get unfortunately get an assignment and they really don't know the books inside and out. But was this from a fan site that asked that? No, it's from it was a no. some Asian just... magazine. Specific, like they were only there to interview Cho Chang. They didn't care about uh, you know Katie Ling. They didn't care about anybody else. Yeah. But hell, we we, we didn't even recognize most of the actors on the red carpet. I remember seeing Jason Isaacs walking past us, and like elbowing you, thinking, "Did you just see the guy? Are we gonna talk to him?" And nobody yeah. saw him because he was wearing like a big scarf. <laughs> so it was very fun. They were wearing by. all these jackets and scarves, and we didn't know that they. If they didn't yeah. want to talk to you, they got by without. Yeah. They, as they were walking by, you realized who they were, and at that point, it was too late. Well, they were pretty late, though. I mean, especially Mr. Fines was pretty late, wasn't he? Dashing into last. Well, they were second. at they were at the 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 pre party, weren't they? They yes. were at the pre premiere party. Yeah, yeah. That we I all heard went that to. That was at a, a one of those playlands at McDonald's. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that's, that's, what, that's what I heard. Yeah, having, having those Big Macs to go, right? Yeah. <laughs> they had to play in the ball pit. In the slides. So right, we were talking about the DVD and Ray Fines, and let's get back on Tumblr. Oh, speaking about... of Mr. Fines, <laughs> yes. Mr. Fines was just on the um, Bravo's uh, very fine show called Inside the Actor Studio, and um, he talked a bit about his role as Voldemort. It was a really good well, interview. What did I mean. he say about about Voldemort that we hadn't heard before? Well, it's just that there was a collaborative effort all the way down from J.K. Rowling to Mr. Newell to. Um, Mr. Clovis and 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 just the way uh, he talked about how it was like to act behind with no nose or you know how they put the the taped up his eyes and and how he, his concern was that you know I mean it's his face and he uses so I mean he's so expressive and you know he has these levels going on in his expression that how he was going to be able to con- convey that but he uh so he was concerned about that nose but it worked out really well and he was he was really pleased with it he he said that they um took paint and put the blue like for his hands to make him look transparent. So every every day they had to do, redo his hands to, to match that up for those scenes. I thought really? that was kind of interesting. Yeah, to make it look. That's very interesting. It, it was, and how they tried to make it, his clothes simple so the the focus would be on his face, you know, and just his hands. It, it was really, it was kind of neat. Now, did, they, did he did he mention if if Kruciop was actually in the script or if there was no. an ad lib? <laughs> No, that didn't come up. Strangely enough, it just that would have been a great ad lib. <laughs> to tell him the next time, work that in. Yeah, that would be good. Now, did he talk at all about what kind of extra information he got from J.K. Rowling, or what kind of things no. that he didn't know about fueled the character performance? No, unfortunately, he didn't. I know that he's he's talked about that before, and there was a new um, a, another article with him in the New York Times too that we just had. But um, no, he didn't. And it looked like they had cut it down because it was towards the end of the interview, and it's just an hour show. So, in, and it, so it looked like they cut a lot of that part out a little bit. But no. Yeah, that's a shame. Who who do you have to call to get the to get the uncut version? Yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna work on it, guys. <laughs> yeah, I'll for sure. Work yeah, my contacts. Get Bravo yeah. on the phone. Well, I can't wait to see that. You know, that stuff should be in the making. On, on the, we got the official press release on the the DVD, DVD stuff. DVD March seventh. Mm-hmm. We did get the official that's press hot. release. Yeah. Um. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm sort of like, well, it'll be the DVD and it'll be great. <laughs> I just yeah, there'll be some deleted scenes. There'll be filmmaker commentary. I don't think there's a full audio commentary. If there was, they would have made a bigger deal out of it. 
yeah. been, unfortunately. been made. Unfortunately. I don't understand. There must be a reason this hasn't been done. Maybe they're waiting until the end of everything and they're going to release a big special edition and it will have audio commentaries and it will be the reason that everybody goes and buys it. Everything again. Well, th- my that would be that- cool. Yeah, my hope is that they would do that. If they're going to do that, go full out and do like the Lord of the Rings. Make it the the full out extended version with all the deleted scenes put in or the director's cuts or even whatever you want to call them. Even not for each movie. Even, well, that's even what, if you did like an eight-disc set and then like the last disc was like four hours of documentary footage on everything. Because I, I still have not watched all the stuff from Lord of the Rings. My Return of the King still has the plastic around it. I can't get no through way. it. I swear. <sighs> I can't get through it all. I will one day. But I mean. They stink. But the Potter ones, I absolutely, I would, I would oh, borrow sure. that too. Yeah, but I'm glad. At least this one looks like there's much more. I mean, not just the uh, deleted scenes, but the 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 vignettes, the the, the preparing. So I'm looking forward to well, that see, very much. See, this is a good thing about them releasing movies in HD now, because now they have an actual valid excuse to re-release the DVDs. Yes. So if they wanted to, they could make the HD versions, the extended cuts, they actually add those deleted scenes back into it, because the thing about those scenes, for me anyway, is that it's like, oh yeah, I'm so excited, deleted scenes, it's the first thing that I watch when I buy the DVD, and I probably watched all the deleted scenes, like maybe once, yeah, maybe twice, it's like, it's not something you think to go back and watch again, like like you would an entire movie, you know? Well, I loved it. Like you know, when the, on the ABC they they showed uh, Chamber of Secrets, they put the d- deleted scenes into the cuts. When we yes. had the big yeah, yeah, and that just made it. I enjoyed watching it like that. I just thought, well, so surely if they put that out on DVD, I I know I would buy it. So yeah, hear us, Warner Brothers, hear us. The fans want it. We get emails all the time about that. <laughs> yeah, totally. you tell They're Warner not Brothers. listening. Ah, <laughs> oh, shh! Don't tell them that. <laughs> Well, speaking of <laughs> interviews and behind-the-scenes stuff, um, we got mm-hmm. another glimpse into the life of one Miss Joe Rowling in the Tatler, the High Society magazine, for which, I'm sorry, she looked like a supermodel in those pictures. Yeah. She was gorgeous, it's... absolutely gorgeous. Because she's, she's a beautiful woman, but what I don't know what they did. She looks stunning. We heard a lot of – we heard, you know – Sometimes I forget how little about like her life and the way her life is now we actually do hear about. Whenever she does an interview, we do hear about the books, but we never hear those little stupid details that only a society magazine would be interested in, such as not booking the Britannica because of the Britannia because she wanted to dance for her 40th birthday or buying those earrings yeah. and feeling guilty about it and writing the same amount to charity. Um, that was That was nice. It was a nice change. I I enjoyed it. I mean, I know some people thought, oh, it's too intrusive and stuff, and I I really didn't feel that it was too, at all. I mean, I I just thought it was a nice little glimpse to Joe the person, you know. So. The first part of the interview with Arthur Levine is in this this week's show. What fun I had with with him. He he just you know it's rare that you get to sit down with with somebody who's so involved in these books and have it not be you know. J.K. Rowling. It's, it's it's the next level of rare below J.K. Rowling, and so um, it was really yeah. really well, interesting. Anyway, he was he was so great and very just patient and and in the beginning you'll you'll hear we settled once and for all because I bet you I will bet you Potter fans you say you say that you know the story of how Arthur Levine brought Harry Potter to mm-hmm. America. Think about it in your head. Think about it right now. What you think happened, and then listen to the story, yes. and I will bet you you're wrong. 
It's the story. Yeah, it's I, one I of these that. things that's been mangled and mangled and mangled over the years, where nobody knows the real story. So he, must, wow. he nailed it down for the permanent record how Harry Potter was brought to America. Excellent. I heard that it came over in an inner tube. A what? <laughs> and, it, and, it, and it drifted upon the shore somewhere in South Carolina. On the SS Potter, right? It just sailed right yeah. over. Huh? It was the first Harry Potter ship. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Very good. Listen to you. Funny. John Noe, you're rubbing off on me, John Noe. Oh, Lisa makes cute. it funny. Um, <laughs> the first ever ship. The need of the, the, the Pinta and the Hagrid. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> and the, and the harmony. <laughs> harmony, harmony. <laughs> oh. How many people were not insulting you? We're not. I know. Oh, it's, it's adorable, is what it is. All right, guys, let's 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 go on because we have a fan interview, we have another great podcast, and we have Mr. Arthur Levine in this week's show. Mm-hmm. And an, and an, in the know. no. No. Oh, we we've not had one for ten weeks. We haven't had time to have one. We have so many good things. We, we're going to do another in the know. We have plenty of people that we want to use for in the know. I want to. I want to. I want to interview Hot Cheryl. <laughs> Hot Cheryl will be in Extendable Ears. Oh, that's even better. Um. Oh. Okay. Anyway, we will have another in the know. But when we've had so many good Extendable Ears things, we haven't had time to do it in the know, and we will anyway. Arthur Levine is clearly extendable ears. <laughs> he liked. He really liked that that we called it extendable ears. When I told him, he started laughing. Did he? Yeah. Cool. That's nice. Well, let's get to All it. All right, let's go. I can't wait to hear it. So. In the fan corner, a one-on-one interview with a new lucky fan each week. Not me. Not Hermione. You. Hi everyone, this is Doris Herman, and welcome to the Fan Corner. With me today is Scott Perez-Fox, one of our newest forum forum members. Scott, how are you today? I'm doing very well, thanks. Scott and I have been talking quite a bit about some of the uh, elements of literature in Harry Potter, and today we were going to discuss one topic that that is uh, an element that we find in Shakespeare quite a bit, and we also find in Harry Potter. Scott has quite a Shakespearean background, so he's going to share that with us. So, Scott, you wanted to talk about order and chaos in, in uh, Harry Potter. Let's just listen to what you say before I ask some questions. <laughs> okay, no problem. Um, I, I think before we start talking about how the themes of order and chaos occur in Harry Potter, we should kind of bring it back to the origins um, and just talk about order and chaos at because they are some of the oldest themes in mythology and in literature. Um, some of the, or most of the, I should say, most of the creation stories in, in mythology, especially in the Greek and, and Egyptian and the Western mythology, come from, come from order. So the stories will begin sort of in the beginning, there was only chaos. And chaos in the sense of disarray, randomness, just n- no order to, to the universe, to the world, to anything. And then they say, an order was created, you know, either by some god or whatever. Um, the, the Egyptian story is actually quite interesting because it, it <laughs> this is going into a little obscurity, but it talks about how Seth, who is the god of chaos, is one of the most important deities in that society. So you, you can see that the whole society is built on order and chaos and that when things are going your way, it's you pray to this god because he's, you know, giving you order but then when things are bad you, you know you talk to this god because he's he's controlling the chaos and so you want to appease him um 
skipping ahead a few centuries to the Elizabethan era uh, in which Shakespeare wrote in the, the English Renaissance, you see the themes of order and chaos quite a bit. And you could actually argue from most of his plays that his entire play, the plot of it, is just a struggle to return to order after some ensuing chaos. Um, now, relating to Harry Potter, is it, you can basically apply the same principle as Shakespeare in saying that each book within itself is starts it starts in order as a struggle for order starts with order then becomes really chaotic as the year progresses there's events that happen on halloween and the kids start investigating and maybe there's a fight or you know, some big, big event around christmas and it's suddenly very urgent and then there's that resolve toward the end of the year as it reaches a climax and then there's that resolve and one of the things that that helps this out in the harry potter books is of course dumbledore's wrap-up speech and you, you see this almost every year. I mean, obviously not the last year, unfortunately. Every other year, Dumbledore comes in at the end, no matter what's happened, how fantastic and how bizarre, how tragic, Dumbledore's there to sort it out. And he's there to explain things. And so he is the character that brings the order back to the situation. Um, whereas, of course, Voldemort's usually the one creating the chaos in the first place. So you have Harry kind of in the middle of this this war between order and chaos and he's the the one who's always getting caught in the struggle between Dumbledore and between Voldemort and and is Harry's world that, or you could view it from Harry's eyes that it's his world being thrown into chaos and having to be reordered in the sixth book uh, one thing I noticed and, and you can tell me what you think about this and Dumbledore was not there to kind of give his his, and, and I call it his locker room speech. His, you know, okay, troops, we've got to rally together, and, and here we go. And he wasn't there this time to give it, obviously. But something else kind of happened that sort of took its place, and it was almost to me a representative of Dumbledore. When the Phoenix song was heard, even though it wasn't Dumbledore, well, some people might say it was, but, but even though it wasn't Dumbledore, it could be considered a representation of his character kind of trying to wrap things up in the end. What do you think about that? Yeah, that's a good point. And actually, it's funny because if you're speaking about order and chaos and how Dumbledore's death is obviously a, a massively chaotic event, then you can apply the, you know, the phrase, the order of the phoenix, and that Fox is now bringing order. So that's a bit of a pun. Um, but yeah, back to the question. It's I like that point because when Fox is singing or when he's mourning or whatever, you know, whatever his song is to represent, it's it's almost to fill the place of Dumbledore's words. It's almost to to cover what's happened, cover everyone's pain and, and resolve. And then he's singing in this, this somber mode that you often see at funerals. I mean, in every culture, there's this singing at funerals or music. So he's almost celebrating Dumbledore's life and his power and, and how much influence he's had on everyone. At the same time that he's mourning his loss, I mean, Fox is his companion, it's not just his pet. And uh, the link between them, I hope we'll learn more about it, but it's obviously very pronounced. And I believe it's Harry who who thinks he sees a phoenix rising from Dumbledore's tomb or, or his casket or whatever it is exactly. Um, so the themes of resurrection and phoenixes are quite potent around Dumbledore. So that's a, that's a great point that uh, the song kind of takes the place of Dumbledore's words. Yeah, and 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 I, I guess because in the end of each book up until that one, Dumbledore kind of gives you that feeling of life will go on, things will be better, and and this time the phoenix did it instead of Dumbledore, which was was kind of I think what. The first thing that clued me in on this being the thing that's restoring order 
um, but also really symbolic of Dumbledore as a person. Um, sure, I mean that that makes sense because I think I mean I don't have the text in front of me unfortunately, but after the song, after Fox is done singing, there seems to be this sort of peace, this this gloomy resolve, and the tears stop, and the, the sort of frantic panicking stops and people accept it i mean it happens rather quickly in fact they say oh wow dumbledore's dead um wow we gotta sort this out now we've got a new set of problems and they they've accepted it although of course they're still sad about it but it it calms down that immediate post-traumatic stress so that um yeah the morning after when everything is just manic so I, that's a great point. That's, that's something that maybe we can examine a little bit further. Well, we're going to go on to um, the next part of our fan interview, and we're going to do the Liver Dice segment. Oh, and all right. You kind of know what to expect here. I'm going to give you yeah. the character's name, and I want okay. you to tell me if you think they're going to live or die, and you can expound on it a little bit. And I, I usually try not to comment, but, God, I just almost always do. So yeah. Uh, just, you know, if I talk too much, just tell me to shut up. Okay, and actually, all right, go ahead. I'll, I'll just take it and where it goes. Okay, great. Um, Draco. Draco is gonna live. Narcissa. Narcissa is also gonna live. Lucius. Um, yeah, he's gonna live as well. Tom. But they're not—they're not gonna be together, by the way. Um, they're Tom's? not. No. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Why not? Well, because like half of them will be in Azkaban, so. Oh. Oh, okay. But that's just my my foresight for which whatever that counts for. Okay, Tonks. Tonks, uh, Tonks will live. And yeah. uh, Remus Lupin. Remus Lupin will definitely live. Do you see a pattern developing? I do. I'm, I'm kind of like, ooh, this is going to go quick. <laughs> what are we going to do? <laughs> okay. Well, I suppose there's two that actually deserve a bit of chatter, isn't there? <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. Uh, Molly Weasley. Molly is definitely going to live. Arthur Weasley. Arthur, too? All the Weasleys are going to live. I'll save you the trouble there. Oh, God. <laughs> um, Wormtail. Wormtail, I, I'm sad to say, is going to live. Oh, man. I kind of want him to bite the dust. Yeah, I really do. Yeah, you, I know you do. Okay, so Ron and Jenny, you're going to count them as Weasleys? You think they're going to live? <laughs> yeah, they're Weasleys, I reckon. Okay, okay. Hermione? Hermione's going to also live. All right, the last two. Where's right. Voldemort? Voldemort is going to die. Yeah. Okay, how do you think that's going to happen? Uh, you know, that I haven't figured out yet. I think... Um, well, I think it's going to be at the hands of Harry, and so he's going to live. Um, so there's there's the answer to your question. The only death in Book 7, according to me, is going to be Lord Voldemort's death. Um, and I think that we, we've seen enough death in Harry's own life. I mean, he lost his parents, he lost Sirius, so now he's lost his, his like second father, and then he lost Dumbledore, who's kind of like his third father in, in the regard that he's his mentor. So we have enough death, we have enough loss. Um, so I don't think many people are going to die. Voldemort, though, I think will. And I think it's going to come by Harry, but not by a, a sheer kind of slugging it out or just a firefight. Okay, great then. Um, thank you so much, Scott, for uh, meeting with me today. And I know that um, speaking for myself, everybody loves reading your post in Obscurus. We will... Um, Thank everybody for listening to the fan interview today. Also, if you would like to discuss this topic or maybe a couple other ones that we have uh, brought up, I think Obscurus Books would be the appropriate place 
or Obscurus would be a, the appropriate place for you to um, put these in. And um, also any of the things that we have discussed today would be great subjects for essays, for our essay project. So thank you so much, and um, you guys have a wonderful day. And now, straight from the Leaky Lounge, this week's Modcast. Oh dear, we are in Hi everyone, this is Doris Herman, or Doris TLC, from the Leaky Lounge. Uh, I'm here tonight with the Modcast, and with me is one of our new moderators. I'm Gina Anstey, I'm HP Addict on the Lounge. I'm Nick Ryan, known as Nick TLC on the Lounge. And I'm Lorraine Damarell, otherwise known as Asphodel Wormwood at the Leaky Lounge. Um, in today's Modcast, we're going to be discussing a concept known as the anti-hero. These are character who shows typical heroic qualities, but at the same time in an unconventional way, by showing other characteristics such as, you know, negative characteristics, prejudice, immaturity, or maybe having a darker side. For most Harry Potter fans, the predominant anti-hero, or primary anti-hero, is um, none other than Severus Snape. So guys, what do we think about Snape as the anti-hero? You know, one thing I think is that we, I don't think we can define him as an anti-hero until the end of the series, because right now, it sure does look like he's a bad, bad guy. I don't think he is, but... And I think that, you know, in the end, he's going to prove himself to be an anti-hero. But we kind of have to wait until then. But I do think that he has some of the, the definite characteristics of uh, just being cocky and single-minded and and uh, maybe a little immature. And springboarding off of that, in each book, we get to see sort of Snape as the anti-hero as well as in the series. He's a nasty guy. He's such a piece of work. But yet, he always does something that's good. He always does something that the reader looks at and says, well, begrudgingly, I have to give you that one. So it's book book individual as well as series-wide, potentially. It seems like, though, um, the way that he gets like quasi-redeemed in each book, though, is not... It's maybe through his actions, but he's not there with Harry. He's not, you know right in front of Harry, saving him from a bullet. It's like Dumbledore tells Harry that Snape did this, this, and this. Or, you know, and that somehow their actions that Harry perceived as bad were actually good. And so it's not really as dramatic, and it's not nearly as, as meaningful to Harry, because it's just kind of secondhand. It's not, you know, it's not easily demonstrated right in front of him. It is secondhand, but not always from Dumbledore. In Sorcerer's Stone, we have Quirrell who tells him that it was actually Snape who was saying the countercurse trying to knock him off his broom. But at the end of the day, if Snape has saved the day, does it matter how Harry finds out about it? In the context of the series, it's not who knows about which character knows about which, what. It's about what someone's done. And Snape has saved the day in a very unconventional way. But the whole series is from Harry's point of view, though. So it's all, and it's in his mind a lot of the time, his feelings. So it's really his opinion that does ma- matter. Right. And the one thing I, I think about Snape is every character is there for a reason, and, and they, they teach a lesson. And this, Snape is an anti-hero, is the, is the character that teaches Harry that you can be morally right but not necessarily a nice person. And I think that that's one of the lessons that Harry's going to learn from Snape. And that's an important lesson to learn in life, too. So what do we think of some of the other anti-heroes might be in this series? Lori? I'm venturing to suggest that, if he does redeem himself, um, Peter Bettigrew could be an anti-hero. If people 
People say that, oh, he was sorted into Gryffindor for a reason, and I believe this also, that he will go and do something really good. He might save Harry. If he saves Harry, he's saved the day, he's been a hero, but he's not a typical hero. He's um cowardly and sly and all those nasty negative things that people would otherwise associate, well, as they do associate with Death Eaters. That will make him very typical anti-hero. It'll be very, very contextual whether he, whether his redemptive act makes him an anti-hero because Wormtail has been motivated by saving himself. Um, and if, if it's his own morality that makes him act, makes him make the redemptive choice, then yes, he has a slot of being the anti-hero, but I, I, I'm holding, I'm reserving judgment. You know, one thing I, I want to add to that too, Gina, is is that you made a good point. If he acts out of morality, then he is an anti-hero. If there's some type of of magical spell that, because he owes Harry a life debt, that makes him save Harry in the end, does that make him the anti-hero, or does that mean he's just bound by magic to perform some deed to save Harry? So that's kind of uh, an interesting concept too. Yes, like I said, reserving judgment, as we are for right. Snape as well. Yes, well, and I, I can see Wormtail going from, like, the little rat scurrying around to suddenly being the, the savior of the series. Talk about an odd little twist of fate. Right, well, and who's to say that if it was magic that he wouldn't just kill Harry the second the magic wears off? I mean, you know, he's like, oh, well, thanks, Peter. Thanks so much for saving me. Like, oh, okay, well, yeah, you're welcome. Stab. Like, you know. That would be like him. <laughs> I don't think he's got enough guts to kill Harry. No, I don't think yeah. it will backfire. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and what about Sirius as an anti-hero? I've always seen Sirius as sort of the anti-hero, and Lori disagrees with me. We we have sort of a little debate going on this. So, Dina, Nick, you guys weigh in on it. Tell me what y'all think. Um, I I see Sirius as more of an anti-hero than Wormtail. Um, you know, Sirius comes with so much psychological baggage. <laughs> leaving his family and and sort of being the rebel against their ideals and so he's he's an anti-hero in in that sense because he's in the side of good even though he was born into this um this family that so despises anyone but the purebloods i mean i i think that Sirius qualifies as anti-hero because he had a good heart in the end of it even through poor decisions that he himself was a good person as well, even though some of his decisions were questionable. And yeah, I would say that um, he he does remind me of Peter in some ways. Uh, the fact that he is also basically an outsider, although not necessarily by choice. Um, but just the fact that, you know, his old group of friends, the only one that's really left is Remus, and Remus is the one that keeps, is kind of the, you know, go by the rules kind of guy, and Sirius is very much against going by the rules, as we all know. Um and he, he kind of relishes his status as an outsider, um, as far as not having to follow what Dumbledore says, um, even though Snape uh, makes fun of him for it in, in Book 5, the fact that he can't help out. But I don't really think he's that disappointed by the fact that he doesn't have to deal with Snape, he doesn't have to really deal with Dumbledore very much. Um, and have to follow those rules, because he's very much his own man. Um, The way I see it, however, is although I... He's got those characteristics that would define him as an anti-hero. Um, 
you know, he feels like an outsider, he distrusts conventional values, etc. But what heroic qualities has it got? I, don't get me wrong, I think a lot of Sirius, and he's helped Harry a lot. He's given Harry that beacon of light. When he was at Hogwarts, Harry looked forward to those letters when Sirius would write to him. And now he doesn't have that. Um, but Sirius didn't really save the day or do anything really, really heroic. And for that reason, he can't be an anti-hero. See, and that's where Laurie and I disagree. I, I think that Sirius has done a couple things. First of all, he saved Harry emotionally. There may not have been the physical saving of his life, but, but Harry needed that connection to his family, and he needed to feel um, like he had a family, a family outside of the people that he went to school with and his teachers. That came from Sirius. So in a way, emotionally, Sirius saved Harry. Um, Sirius also kind of redeemed himself because he was in a family of... Uh, not so nice people, and he decided to sort of stand up against them. So in a way, that gives him a, a heroic quality as well, and that's one of the reasons why I think that that Sirius is an anti-hero. But I think Laurie and I are going to have to um, sort of agree to disagree on this one, and maybe we'll go post in the thread in the Obscurus and see how everyone else in that forum feels about Sirius as an anti-hero. I want to thank you guys for listening to our modcast today. If you would like to discuss this topic, this topic is in the Leaky Lounge in the Obscurus Forum. Um, for Lori and Nick and Gina, this is Doris Herman. Thank you for listening to our modcast and have a leaky day. If you haven't been over to Alabans.com, be sure to check out their line of solid wood magic wands and authentic clothing. As our sponsors this week, Alavans.com are offering the Leaky Cauldron podcast listeners a 10% discount. You can pick up the coupon at coupons.blastpodcast.com. It's good for use on all Alavans merchandise. Alavans.com for your spellwork needs. Time to put on our extendable ears. Listen in on Potter Talk from the people making the magic. Welcome to Extendable Ears. We call Extendable Ears the part where we talk to people who are actually involved in the Potter universe, you know, so we get to listen in. <laughs> so this is the Extendable Ears portion of Pottercast for whichever week this is coming out. I'm Melissa, and I'm really excited to be here with Arthur Levine, who is the editor, co-editor of the Harry Potter books, editor of the American editions. He runs uh, Arthur Levine Books, which is the imprint of Scholastic Inc., which is responsible for bringing these books to America. And actually, Arthur Levine himself is credited most often with bringing Harry Potter to America, therefore probably directly responsible for most of the people listening to this, to this Pottercast. And Glad to be here. <laughs> for that, well we thank done, you. by the way. You got all of that right. <laughs> well, hopefully, hopefully, if there's people who can get it right, it's the, it's the crazy fan sites. So anyway, thank you, thank you very much. We're excited to have you. Um, I guess let's just start. There's a lot of confusion. You've told the story a million times, but there's a lot of confusion about exactly how this happened. What what portion in the timeline did you buy the rights? How popular was it in Britain at that time? Um, you know, what, which books have been published? A Potter fan says they know the story, but you ask them and they'll, they'll get it wrong. So this, this is for the permanent record. For the permanent record. This is great, because you're right. I have said this about Eight billion times. Yeah. And but I will say it eight billion and one. <laughs> um 
this is this was the chronology. So this was just around the time uh, that I had started my imprint, Arthur Aitken Books at Scholastic, and that's significant because it it speaks to what I was thinking when I went to Bologna that year. So this is the first year I went to the Bologna International Children's Book Fair mm -hmm. um, as a representative of my own imprint. Um, so this was the spring of 1997, mm -hmm. March 1997, I believe. Um, and my imprint was going to publish its first book in the fall of 1997. Which book was that? It was called When She Was Good by Norma Fox Mazur. I've, I've heard of it. Still in print. <laughs> Proud of it. Um, and I had, um, this was a very important fair for me because this is where publishers from all around the world get together and they talk about books and authors that they're excited about and try to figure out um, what they can publish in their countries or languages. And since I very much wanted my, one of the hallmarks of my imprint to be about bringing the best of the world's literature to American kids. Mm -hmm. This is going to be a very exciting fair. It's the first time I got to go, and um, I had a starting new venture, and I had all of these meetings, because that's how the fair works. You have half-hour meetings where you go from publisher to publisher, and generally you talk to the subsidiary rights director. Mm -hmm. um, publishers talk to rights, rights directors, usually. Okay. Although, you know, we all have our friends who are fellow publishers that we have dinner with or lunch or grab a cappuccino in between meetings. Um, and you kind of have this conversation where the rights director says, well, you know, here's what we have. And the editor says, okay, well, I might be interested in that or might not be interested. They have a conversation. Um, so, of course, one of the companies I, I was excited about seeing is, was Little Bloomsbury, um, who had recently, also recently started, they were, I think, a few years old, publishing wonderful books, of very, you know, they had a literary identity, um, I felt a very strong affinity for what they were publishing and what they were trying to do, and I was, as always, looking forward to meeting with um, Ruth, their rights, rights director. Mm -hmm. Um, and we had this, we had it, so we had our meeting, and it was a lovely meeting, although nothing that Ruth was presenting was the perfect fit for me right at that moment. Right. So at the end of the meeting, she's, a, she's got a great sense of humor, and she's a fabulous rights director. She kind of crossed her arms and said, well, you know, so if none of those things were the perfect thing, what, ex what exactly is it that you're looking for? So... I gave her my little speech about what my what I wanted my imprint to be about. Mm -hmm. I wanted to be the best in the world's literature. I'm looking to publish books that kids will remember for the rest of their lives as, oh, that was my favorite book from childhood. Oh, I still have that on my shelf. You know, this book was, you know, just the book that I, I read to pieces, etc. And she said well, you know, we're about to publish a, a book by a very exciting new writer um, that we think you might like. Um, we don't actually even control the rights. You know, that's the agent does. That may be a technical thing you'll want to explain separately to your readers. Right. Um, but she said, here is a set of galleys. 
I think you'll really like it. Why don't you read it on the on the trip home? And that, of course, was Harry Potter um, and the Philosopher's Stone mm-hmm. by J.K. Rowling. And that was the first time I read it. It was not yet published right. in England, so there was no there was no you know it wasn't popular. It wasn't known. There was nothing that had happened yet. And that's the big point of misconception. People think that it was just because it was known and right. right. It was not no. It was not known. She was in, she was unpublished. Right. It was, you know, there was the enthusiasm of a credible literary publisher behind her at that point. So that's not nothing. Right. You know, at, at that point, I have, had a lot of have, a lot of respect for Bloomsbury. And, you know, that right, Ruth is saying to me, this is really, this is something that we are really excited about. You know, I'll pay attention to that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did. So I actually read it on the plane home, which I wouldn't have if I didn't have that res- level of respect for her. Um, but there was no international moment going on. Um, I, I brought it home and was ex- read it on the plane, was extremely excited about it. Um, just loved it. It was exactly what I was looking for. It had exactly those qualities. It was, you know, had the sense of being, you know, and a book of enduring quality, um, you know, a book for the ages, not just for now. Um, it was funny. Uh, it was exciting. It was, a, you know, a lot of things that are very rare to find in one book. Um, and I really wanted it. Uh, now, the fact was that then several other American publishers also really wanted it. Mm-hmm. And they too read, you know, based on the same factors that I that I that was the center of my enthusiasm. They were I had read it. <laughs> they, That's a big so point. they were excited about the book <laughs> right. that they had read. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm going to assume, but I have no evidence of this, that they also had, you know, a sense of the credibility of Bloomsbury behind them. Yeah. Um, but nothing else. And then we have this this auction. The rights auction, right? That's the rights auction. Mm-hmm. So the, the agent, Christopher Little, held an auction for the U.S. rights. And I think there were, at the beginning, seven publishers. And then, as the way auctions go, it dropped down and dropped down and dropped down. Right. And, you know, I, I won that auction. Mm-hmm. So that's why I got to publish right. it. Now, I will say that the auction itself was a seminal moment in the in what happened to the book. Mm-hmm. Because that, there was a lot of coverage of that auction in England. Mm-hmm. Press because, coverage, you mean? Yes, mm-hmm. a lot of press coverage. And that was partly because of the backstory, um, you know, that, that at that time Joe was had been on public assistance and, you know, like many writers, was struggling yeah. to make a living. Um, so that it wasn't you know her unique position, but it was a position that she was in. And um, she's a single mother with a young daughter. So it, it's a really great story that a person you know, in that situation has persevered and um, managed to get her first book published. Then has this windfall, you know, of a you know a six figure sum from from an American publisher. So this was like this was big, sexy news, and I think that that was that was part of what made people in England sit up 
and say, oh, maybe this is something we need to read. Right. You know, it brought the book to their attention. Right. And it's notoriously hard to make people pay attention mm-hmm. to first first novels, um, especially first children's novels. Um, so there's a lot of things like that. Right. Um, and that was the chronology. So I think Bloomsbury published their book in July of 1997. Mm-hmm. Okay, when, when did the auction happen? In Around April. April. So, but, but as the bidding went up, had you ever paid this much money? What was the, the sum again? I forget. Was it $105,000. $105,000. So what was the closest you've ever paid to that for another book? <gasps> you know... I don't. I don't remember. Yeah. I mean, I I do remember that that was by far the most I'd ever paid for a first novel. Yeah. And it was it was a lot more than I'd pay for almost any other novel, and that's still true. Mm-hmm. That is a huge amount of money. Yeah. <laughs> you say it was like it looks like you're remembering what that was like because it must have been nerve wracking. Well, it, it was nerve wracking. You know, this is my this was my first big um, risk at I mean my first huge risk at a new publisher mm-hmm. so you know the, the, the rest of the publishing publishing house was going along with me they were supporting me yeah okay sure go ahead you know yeah keep going you know stay in it if you're really passionate yes I am I want to you know mm-hmm. so they were all behind me it wasn't a matter of I had to convince reluctant people um, right. but having brought the company along with me it's then my responsibility whether this works or not mm-hmm. and there wasn't a lot of reason other than my belief in the author and the writing mm-hmm. to think that it would work mm-hmm. to the extent that you know it would need to work to pay back a $105,000 advance mm-hmm. That, that has to be a substantial hit. And what I thought at the time was, this is such a, a good book that it will be around for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. And maybe we won't earn back this advance in two or three years, but we will earn it back in five years. Mm-hmm. You know, In the long term, we will be fine. And I am confident. Mm-hmm. So that, that's what I was thinking. At that point, what did you know about the book? Only the first book? Did you know anything about the rest of the series? I I mean, I only knew that she saw it as a, a seven-part story. Mm-hmm. That it was, that this was the first, that she was going to tell us, tell it, write a book for every year that mm-hmm. um, this young man, Harry, was going to be in school. Right. So it's the story of his training and coming of age. Right. But there was no indication that it would be this overarching, massive, masterfully plotted mystery kind of thing. For all you knew, it could have been a serial, you know, like sort of disconnected. Well, I'm not. I'm not sure what the difference is there. I mean, you can't know in advance how you know, right. something is gonna well a lot of a lot of into place. I mean, you're right. I didn't. I didn't know what it would be. What whether it would be you know uh, just seven adventures of a particular character or. I mean, it, it is that. Right. So I think that the, you know, as the books went along, it had you, you get to know what the, the character characteristics are. I mean, 
I, I knew that he would get a year older. I mean, if you look back, I knew all those things. I knew he'd get a year older um, in each one. And so if I thought that, thought that through, I would think, well, okay, so it's going to characteristics or of the books are going to develop along with the character. But in fact, that that's a very, turns out to be a very unusual characteristic of the books yeah. that they while they retain their essential J.K. Rowling character, the the characters really do grow up and change, and therefore the some of the themes and the the plots and the subplots change with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I think the thing that people are are most interested to know, which I think you've answered, is that those that first sale, that initial interest, was based on Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone alone. That it was just on the street. It was not. It was not. Well, we have this, and then there are six more coming, and surely that factors into the decision. But it was the strength of that book that that fueled that sale. Right. I mean, I, I think at, at that point, you know, honestly, it, you you have to you have to say, well, we'll see. You know, we we surely. I mean, from from my point, since I what I was falling in love with was the the author and her capability. You know, I was certainly happy to hear that she had other books in mind because I wasn't interested in publishing somebody who was only going to write one book. I mean, not that I should say I wasn't interested. Really, my hope was to be finding authors. Right. You know, and, and certainly an author as good as that, you want them to write other books. Yeah. Um, so, and it's the excitement of being there at the start of somebody's career. Mm-hmm. You, you know, you hope and you... you that the person will have a, a career and develop as a writer, and that that will be part of the pleasure of publishing them is to watch that, watch as that happens. Right. So, you, so you got the rights, mm-hmm. um, and then the big decision that so many of our readers still to this day either kvetch about or or just discuss is the changing of philosopher to sorcerers. Mm-hmm. So, can you explain the process that went behind that? Sure. You know, that did not, does not, did not, it does not seem like um, a big decision. Um, and it really wasn't at the time. Uh, you know, I would have been happy to call it Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. That would have been fine. Um, but at the time that we were introducing it here within our own company and thinking about introducing it to, to American readers, many people who heard the title and then read the book said, Oh, this is really a you know a different a different book than I thought it would be with the title Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. Yeah. You know, I'm a literary imprint. I can publish a book called Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, or you know, called The Philosopher's Stone. Right. Um, but what readers now do not have the benefit of the that point of view that we had at that point, which is this is an unknown author. Um, she is at the time that I'm publishing this. The idea, publishing a British author is not a you know is a not something that is considered commercially um, a plus. The fact that the author is from England, you know, is maybe you know a strike against it. Is that in the market in the consumer marketplace? Is that why, or yeah. is it? Well, and, and I'm frankly, with reader feedback as well. Really? Um, you know, people, yeah, there's, there was an idea that um, kids 
or not don't want to read about people you know, who are not like them. Um, so, anyway, while I know what a philosopher's stone is, and many people, many probably many others do now, particularly since uh, Harry Potter is such a big phenomenon that it's probably uh, induced many people to find out what a philosopher's stone is. Um, if you think about marketing a book, um, it is possible that someone hears a philosopher's stone and thinks that it's a book about philosophy. So our idea was we would really like to make sure that the title of the book evokes in kids' minds the, the nature of the book itself. Yeah. So we're trying to make sure that, that in the general consumer's mind, they, they, they get what they think they're getting. Right. And we didn't think Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone was necessarily the best title. Well, there's a different connotation in England, right? When people hear Philosopher's Stone in England, you do get the Sorcerer's Stone implication. Is that correct? You know, that's possible, but it's also, you know, think about England. They, they're publishing a person, they paid 3,000 pounds. They, you know, they're, they're a literary publisher, and their, their goal um, is to just is to launch the book and launch the author, and it's really fine if they sell 300, 500 copies. You know, I'm making, I'm making that number up. I think, I think the first one was about 500, number yeah. of copies. Yeah. I know that they paid, you know, something like 3,000 pounds. Um, so it's really fine if they if if they get a very small audience. That's all they're thinking they're going to get. Right now, we on the other hand are thinking, well, actually, we think that there's a bigger audience for this particular book. How can we convey that? How can we convey the nature of the book? Um, so I went to went back to Joe. This is also, by the way, an extremely common occurrence in books that come from other countries that we say, is this the best title? It's also an extremely common occurrence for, for books that we originate. Okay. An author sends in a manuscript, it has a given title. It's one of the favorite things for sales and marketing departments to discuss. Okay. Because it seems like a big thing, and if they can get the title that they want, then it gives them confidence going into the market, selling the book to booksellers, Etc. And giving the people who are selling the book confidence is an important part of a successful publishing effort. You, know, you want to do that. If you can accomplish that while keeping the author happy, then you do it. It, it's only, it only makes sense. Yeah. So the next step is to, to go to the author because whatever you do, it's the author's book. Right. And she has to be happy with the title. So I went back to Joe, and the, I remember the conversation, what the title that I suggested was, how about Harry Potter and the School of Magic? Because mm -hmm. it seems like Hogwarts is a very important part of this. Right, especially that first year. And she thought about it, and she said, well, you know, I don't, I don't, I'm not sure about that. Um, how about Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone? I said, oh, Sorcerer's Stone, okay. That evokes magic more directly and obviously. Mm -hmm. um, why don't I take that back? 
I took that back, and everyone was like, oh, yes, that's great. That's great. <laughs> so, okay. You know, so my the sales and marketing department are happy. The author's happy. The book goes out. Right. Um, you know, P.S., there are two P.S.'s. P.S. number one, I think that it worked. <laughs> maybe. And, you know. I, I feel, well, not maybe. No, I'm yeah, kidding. Right. Okay, I mean, may, maybe is maybe it would have been, you know, fine with Philosopher's Stone. Right. I certainly think that if book four had been called Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, that would be no problem. Right. You know, and we, we would have, you know, whatever she wants to call it, she can, you know, would be absolutely fine because, again, fans are there. She's... No one will. No one will take the title as an excuse to skip a book, right? Which is a very great possibility with an unknown author. Mm -hmm. When you have, when you're introducing an unknown author to, uh, you know, to booksellers and the public, mm -hmm. or particularly booksellers, any any opportunity, any reason they have to skip it, to not order it, to not put it on their shelves, they will. Because there's a lot of competition. Mm -hmm. And so we do a lot of things to make it impossible for them to skip. Right. You know, you want to make the price the best price you can make it. You want to make the package the most beautiful, compelling package you can. Mm -hmm. You know, all of these things are not necessarily intrinsic to the book, but they're part of what brings the book to readers. Mm -hmm. And that was our primary goal. Get the book to readers. And that's the whole reason. The second PS is, can you tell me what the what the title of the book is in French? The first book? The first book, no. Four, yes. But the first book, strangely, no. What is it in French? ask our But it's Harry Potter and... I can't speak French. L'école du sorcier, which is Harry Potter and the School of... Magic. Oh, really? <laughs> yes. So, really, changing of the title is not limited right. to, you know, some publishers in other countries took it directly. Harry Potter y la piedra filosofale, you know, took it directly. Other other publishers thought, well, you know, I think we need something slightly different. Right. And so they did. Mm -hmm. um, I think what happens here is that the conversation is becomes about things that are not that have nothing to do with the title. You know, this interest in the title and the title change. Right. I think comes from other unstated questions or accusations that you know people want to want to make. Right. But then after after book one, have have the titles changed across the board, or then after book one, has it just been the same title pretty much? Yeah, well, I think there is no, there, um, certainly book two, The Chamber of Secrets, you know. That's powerful enough on its own, yeah. The Prisoner of Azkaban. Yeah. You know, those are, neither of those have a word that people could confuse, and certainly by that time, it doesn't matter. Okay, we're at the end of Pottercast 22 again. <laughs> Aww. Aww. So that was the first 20 <laughs> minutes with with Arthur Levine. I had a I had a really great time interviewing him. We're gonna have another 20 minutes of it up next week. 
bet you did. Where where did you guys have this little interview at? A it was in a, it was funny story. Fancy restaurant, Italian restaurant. No, fu with funny story. We're in his in Scholastic in the building in which he's one of the major you know editors, and we come down to the conference room where we're supposed to be in, and there's people in it already. And he just came in. He's like, you know, can we use this conference room? And and the people in it were like, well, we have it booked. And he said, well, actually, we have it booked. And, and it was like. They don't realize that they're talking to like probably their boss. <laughs> you know, yeah. because when you're an editor, you you don't you know you don't. That's hilarious. It's so funny. <laughs> It'll be even funnier if that he didn't have it booked. No, it, <laughs> it was, was booked. It was, it was like throwing his weight booked. around. But he was actually I didn't hadn't even thought of it, but he didn't want to to just go into one of the random empty ones because we were recording and he didn't want to get um, you know have the sound mess it up if people came in wondering. Were there, you know, if we went into somebody else's room and in 30 minutes somebody came in and said, "This is my room." Yeah. All right. Can I just say one, th one more thing here? With this unrelated, but that widget thing, Miss Melissa. Oh, Nelly, aren't the widgets us. cool? Awesome. Are, are, I love them. Okay. I didn't. Last time we talked about widgets here, it was because I had made one and I was so excited. But let me explain to you about who has come on our staff. He's he's not announced yet because I don't. He won't send me his bio. Um, his name is Chris Chang. And he is like widget machine. He just he has a different idea every day for widgets that he wants to do. We have a ton coming down the line that are great. We have a, a that's going to go up very soon. A search box for that for the entire flu network where you choose what you want to search. If you want to choose news, you type what it, what you want to search, and Leaky will come up. You want to search the lexicon, you type awesome. what you want to search, and the lexicon search will come up. It's really really cool. Then the news widget is going to be working for Windows, which everybody has been asking for forever. Yay! We now have Yay. a DVD countdown widget, mm -hmm. which is really cool. Um, and yeah, and if you have ideas for widgets, email them to widgets at the-leaky-cauldron.org, and we will, I mean, the, yeah. the DVD one came in because people kept emailing us saying, can you make us a DVD one, and the next day, Chris had made them. Awesome. Yeah, I can't get over how many people use the widget thing in, in the feedback form for about anything but widget talk. <laughs> like yeah. I don't understand what yeah. the word means. It's yeah. like, oh, I got an email from the widgets. Let's open it up, and it says, I think that Dumbledore turned into a phoenix before he got hit by Snape's <laughs> curse, and that he's gonna come back because he was an animagus with a phoenix. I think. What do you think? <laughs> I'm like, I think that's not a widget. I think you have the wrong email address. I'm gonna hit delete. I think also that's that a good thing. That's not my job. That's Kristen's job. Yeah, Kristen, if if you have emailed Leaky, you've probably heard back from Kristen. If if you're just a Leaky website visitor, you probably um, wonder where Kristen sort of is if you looked at our staff page. But that's because she pretty much stays off the page and answers like every single one of your emails. I the Leaky Liaison. Leaky. If you want to talk to Kristen, send her an email. I'm sure she'd appreciate it. Because <laughs> she doesn't get any. <laughs> no. <laughs> No, she was just telling me about how few emails she's been getting lately and how bored she's been. Yeah. Speaking of Kristen, she's going to be helping us out a lot on a brand new segment that is coming to Pottercast. Do we want to tell everybody about it right now? A brand new yeah. segment? A brand new segment. Dude, what would that tell. Be? Well, you know how we have that fan interview every week? Well, sure we do. It's a beautiful segment. It's a beautiful segment. Well, we decided we want to shake things up a bit, and this is something that we've wanted to get going for a while, um, so we're finally doing it. Every other week, oh my this segment will not be a fan interview, but an interview or a discussion about a piece of fan fiction or a piece of fan art. 
We're going to start um, f- featuring <laughs> fan artists and fan fiction writers within the community because there are so many talented ones of you guys out there. And th- this is just such a great way to to talk about it. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's incredible just how, well, we, we know how diverse the Harry Potter fan community is. And, you know, we've obviously everybody knows that... Um, you know, there's there's a lot of other Potter websites out there that don't cover news and don't necessarily cover the facts like the lexicon, but they're into things like writing stories with the characters, the fan fictions, and then uh, drawing pictures and stuff. I actually kind of like that a little more. And uh, but anyway, my opinion is is moot. But they're both they're all very interesting. Well, but Chris and uh, and we're gonna get some help from Kristen and our other staff member Heather. Uh, Heather. Yeah. Well, because she's a well-renowned uh, fan artist herself. Heather is very known in the fan art community, and Kristen works on another site called The Sugar Quill, which many of you yes, are probably awesome. familiar with. It, it 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 is a smaller fan fiction archive, but one that puts a focus on um, good writing, which we think is yes. important in all aspects of life. So we really admire what they do over there, and so she's going to help us find fan fiction, not just from The Sugar Quill, from anywhere on the net. So if you think that you um, should be considered for this, drop us an email, staff at pottercast.com, and Kristen will help us choose which ones we, f- we feel should be featured. Right. And exactly. Some- yeah, the, the, the plan is to feature some new artists or authors or popular ones or whoever. I mean, if there's, if there's some stuff that, that you follow, um, an artist or an author... You, you don't have to be the author or artist yourself if you want to send in your opinion. Maybe maybe we would uh, notice a trend yeah. in who are who's getting uh, suggested. Yeah, send it in even and, if it's um, not your own. What yeah. you think we should cover? We're we're more we're more than happy to hear as well. This, I mean, Heather is so awesome. Yeah. I, she, her, and I'm partial to her, and I'm partial to Marsha, Marta. Marta, Marta is really great, and we her site for many of you who don't know artdungeon.net let me tell you about Marta Marta recently put up a a picture which is the entire cast of the Harry Potter verse it is Harry Potter in one gigantic it's unbelievable it's like they're all sitting yes. in the great hall for a portrait it's incredible it's- it is. It's my wallpaper. It's the most amazing, <laughs> astonishing thing to sit and look at all this huge amount of characters and think that Joe came up with this. But then, Marta drew it. It's amazing. Well, it's amazing. And I, I actually, I had it on the background of my computer when I conducted the interview. And I opened up oh. my computer and I was getting my microphone set up. And he looked and he goes, "What's that?" And I said, "Oh, oh my gosh, you should see this." And I opened it up and he just, he, he gasped and, and um, he, he commented that Ferenz was a, Whoa. was a bit of a, was a. What, what a beefy centaur. <laughs> it's a yes. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. Really we'll, we'll put the link up, right, Melissa, so they can all see this one. If they're to this, but, oh, yes, man. Yes, we'll crash Marta's site. Yay. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> no, but it's so it's so amazing. So he was impressed? I mean, did you know, had he seen her work? Yeah, before? he was impressed. I don't, I don't, if he's seen it, he probably didn't remember at that moment, you know, yeah. where he'd seen it, but he was, and it was funny because he noticed it even through my 1,400 icons that I've got on my desktop. But yeah. he like, <laughs> you know, he noticed behind it that there was this great Harry Potter art there. Um, yeah, he was really impressed with it. Okay, so anyway, oh, speaking of fans, this is a great little segue. We um, now have a Pottercast fan listing. Yes, we do. It's at pottercastfans.com. There are. It's so cute. Now, is there a link to that 
Is that cool little flicker thing in my jigger? What flicker thing? In there somewhere? What flicker thing in my jigger? Uh, not flicker. I'm getting my things. Our confused. frapper map. You frapper. We yeah. also have flapper. a frapper map. We'll put that up on the fan submissions page as well. We're gonna make that page into all the things that you send us and the, the pages you make and stuff. Um, it was so nice. Shannon heard that we had we didn't have a fan listing and she just emailed us and said, "Hey, I've made you one." Um, I guess it's a place to get icons and it's a place to to find other people who are fans of the same thing. Right. It's just it's just like a like a, a point to come and then they can go out and find the different fan sites and stuff. You know, I guess it was like one of the first things when the, the net started, I guess really. Yeah. Yeah. But that's cool that we have one. But we're putting this on our page so you, uh, if you go there you can, and then we're going to have all the other stuff for all the different links, right? To the frapper site. Yeah, we'll have a link to the frapper map and we'll have um I don't know, what because other the, other links? Yeah. Well, I know that the <laughs> I know that there are the uh, different fan sites like here, the Mafia and the, <laughs> that we all have. Yeah, well, I've I know got I feel weird linking to those from, from I do too, um, but you know the Squeeze, they have a frapper map too. The Squeeze are out there, so Squeezers, hello. I, uh, Shout out to I, them. I didn't tell you guys. <laughs> I, uh, I forgot to tell you about the story about what happened with me and my fan site. I started this new school down here in Miami, and I'm, I've been meeting people. And you know, you know the kind of people who like to Google people that they meet, you know? Yeah. So I've got more than one people person coming up to me and being like, Is that was that you with that fan site or something? <laughs> These kids <laughs> What is that all about? And I'm like, Oh my gosh, I just made the Googling process for these new people I made so much easier. Wow. Well, I didn't make it. You know I Kimmy Blair is messing up all my chances with with new girlfriends. Well, speaking of girlfriends, they're all googling me. I have to tell this story now. What happened tonight? Okay. Um, if you listen to the uncut fan interview with Andrew and Ben, which we sort of slipped onto our feed without putting on the main page because it's just a little extra. So if you're an iTunes subscriber, you probably have it and you have heard of it. We sort of we talked about our first kisses. I don't know how we were talking about Harry and Ginny, and we just sort of told our stories of our first kisses. Well. There's this, not, you know, this, not like a day after this goes out, I went to an engagement party. And who is there? Who is at this engagement party but the person I haven't seen in like five years? The person who ben was. Shane. No, the person who was my first kiss. Oh. It's so the strangest thing. <laughs> no way that he was there. <laughs> and I couldn't like walk up to him and say, I was just talking about you, because that would have been weird. But <laughs> is, he, is he still as hunky as he was back in the day? No, he's not. No. But we've all, we've all got our, our, our time thing. <laughs> I hope he's listening. Sorry, first kiss oh, boy. Well, it's not to you me. are no longer attractive. He's attractive, but not to me anymore. I think that's the, the more prevalent point, is that oh, not to me anymore. Just, it was 14 years ago, oh. guys. Yeah. 14 years. Anyway, you know what the first thing he said to me was? No. What? I saw you in the newspaper. <laughs> oh. The New York Post article. That article is haunting me. It's everywhere. Oh. Every person I run into that I haven't seen in a couple years says, I said I saw the New York Post and you were in it. I said, Oh jeez. Okay, so what else do what else do we gotta uh, do we have shirts? Something 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 we need hey, to take care hey, of. Hey, I think about I think what was it like a week ago, right? That we asked people to send yes. in band books t shirts designs? <laughs> just just a mere mere week about ago. a week ago, right? We asked you guys <laughs> to send in <laughs> designs. I think it probably might have been like a week ago or like September. Yeah, that was a week ago. What are you talking about? It was a week ago. We said it's band yeah. book t-shirt week. It's band, it's band book books week and we wanted you to send in designs that reflected that Joe's books had been banned that we could send to her. <laughs> and we finally finally 
Yay. Finally <laughs> have have brought those designs to you. So they are now on Pottercast.com. Hmm. You're going to have to go to Pottercast.com and check them out. We have a new section on Pottercast.com. Ooh. Yeah, and it is called, um, I don't know what it's going to be called, actually, because it's not technically up as we're recording. But you'll see it. It's a new section. It's either called Fan Submissions or Listener Submissions or Fan... I don't know. And linked there are the, the final three. Fan stuff. Fan stuff. The final three um, top choices yeah. of ours for the Band Books t-shirts, which we will print as t-shirts and send to Joe. Slick. Yeah, you know, not, not a moment too soon, because we, we just got an email from... Uh, from Joe and her people saying how it was laundry day recently and she needed one more t-shirt to put on so she can send the clothes to the cleaners and we have not sent it to her yet. Well, we're sending so her three, she so she should be covered. She's threatened to revoke our fansite award. Well, the, one, the ones who sent the, the best ones were Holly, who sent this really adorable book behind bars. Mm-hmm. Um, like He's like tapping his foot, he looks all annoyed, and it oh, says, let my pages go. It's really cool. <laughs> then there's um, from so Melinda. Cute. It says I, and it has the Harry Potter glasses, and then banned books. It's sort of, I don't even know what it really says, but it's it's graphic design. It's it's nice. It's graphically pleasing. It's, it's more more of a design than than a picture. Right. And then we have a really realistic looking picture of broken glasses, right. which says my book got banned. Right. Really cool. So thank you for all good stuff. Yeah, I, we just see. Everybody's so talented. We appreciate you guys sending this stuff in. The enthusiasm that you show is just really well. Speaking wonderful. of speaking of enthusiasm, yes. uh, this one came out a lot faster than the than the band books t-shirts. Yes. We'll, we'll look, number seventeen. We asked you what was on Voldemort's iPod. You guys responded yeah. yes. in fine, <laughs> fine podcast listener style. Yes. <laughs> you sent us the yes. funniest list. I swear to God. You go look on pottercast.com on the list, on the fan submission page and you'll see the link to all of these. My favorite has to be the one from Sejo where he sent us oh, sure. a, an animated gif of um, Voldemort's pointy-fingered hand holding a iPod Nano that has the book 6 art on it and then it has, you know, scrolling through. All of them were great. They're all great. And the tunes, the, the humor that went into picking the songs was what I loved. Very Just, clever. What are your favorites of the songs that people think that Voldemort listens to? Oh, man. Melissa, dead on the spot. There's like well, about well, 50 of them. Well, I love Hit Me With Your Best uh, Shot from Pat Benatar. <laughs> yeah. Hit Me With Your Best Shot. Uh, Happiness is a Worm so... Gun from the Beatles. That's kind of sick, though, you know? There is, you know. But, but I mean, there's other stuff, you know, like Sympathy for the Devil and, you know, like Stones. And, I mean, so I found there's some humor in that And then we that found way, that he's a big but, show uh, tune fan, apparently. He has Will I yes, from yes. Rent in there. Broadway. <laughs> what yeah. is there? Will I from Rent? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Isn't That's that funny? awesome. I can just see him with the Death Theaters making a chorus of that. <laughs> Superstition from Stevie Wonder. Um, right. What are some of my favorites? You're so vain from Carly by Carly Simon. You're, you're so vain. You know, but there's you know other. I mean, there's funny stuff. I mean, because I get. Just thinking about him in connection, like Bad Moon Rising and Bad to the Bone, which cracked me up by George Thorogood. You know, so the names of those songs and thinking about Voldemort. Survivor by Des- from Destiny's Child. Survivor. Sweeney Todd, the yeah. Demon Bobber of Fleet Street. <laughs> now, if ever yeah. there was a musical for <laughs> Voldemort, that's it. Oh, what a crazy, crazy. 
so yeah, these these are great. Go take a look. And and wherever we could, we put a link to iTunes for you for to that song, so that you could go and buy the song if you're if you are so inclined. Yeah, if you feel so inclined. Some of them cool. aren't on. Fill up your iPod with Voldemort songs. Yeah, you can have a Voldemort on playlist. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Just yeah. don't go out killing anybody because that's not nice. Yeah, I'd like to say right now that we're not responsible for anything that happens as a result of listening to these playlists. <laughs> not responsible for what happens when you pretend you're Voldemort. <laughs> you know, okay. Loyal Leaky Cauldron viewers, attendees, podcast listeners. We have a big surprise coming yeah. for Leaky, and we've it's we've named it. What have we named it? <gasps> Fitty. Project Fitty. Project Fitty Five. Project Fitty Five. Fitty Five. Special reason for that name that mm-hmm. we won't go into. But um, yes, it's Project Fitty Five, so you can start ruminating on what that may be. Some of you might know, but if you do know and they you tell somebody else, care. we'll we'll be mad. Yeah, it'll be a, it'll be about that time to start hiding the question marks all over the website. No again. question marks because you know why? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> that was the most fun thing ever. <laughs> no, I didn't. No, I didn't we cry that people. night that our server exploded and everybody it was did. waiting for the answer or anything. No, yeah. Melissa didn't cry that she had made all these Harry Potter fans go crazy and now they hated her. <laughs> I still think that was darn entertaining, regardless uh. of how many people we annoyed. Oh, annoyed. Man, I I thought I had heart failure. No way. Oh, man. You had heart failure. <laughs> oh, right no at the way. second we had the entire fandom whipped up into a frenzy, the server oh, breaks. <laughs> Maybe I'm just repressing all of that experience. And now realizing, no, now thinking that it was hilarious. Well, anyway, there's nothing question mark about this project. This no. project is a big, gigantic exclamation point, And we're <laughs> so excited. We can't yeah, wait. Yeah, that's what we'll do. We'll hide exclamation points everywhere. Or we'll t- shut down the site and put a big exclamation, exclamation point on for about five minutes. Or that big fish, that big red herring, because that was fun. That was the great red herring. I think Though no one really ever explained to me what a red herring was, so I just use it in inappropriate means. Or it's like, isn't it supposed to mean like like a clue that isn't a clue, yeah. so it's a red herring? A red herring leads you somewhere <laughs> you're not supposed to go. A red I just like to put it clue. places, just for no reason. It's a false clue. I think I put it on like the About Us page for a while and it didn't make any sense, but it was fun because it's a funny graphic. Anyway, yes. Yeah, so Project Fifty Five coming to Leaky. I can't wait to read what you guys think it is. It's gonna be great. Fifty Five to a theater near you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, guys. I think it's time to say goodbye. Yes. Yeah. Time to say goodbye. goodbye. Oh, happy birthday, Kalasma! Yay, Kalasma! Happy birthday Just... to Kalasma! Good, keep going. Happy birthday to Klausma. Good. Happy birthday to Klausma. One more line. Happy birthday to Klausma. Yay! <laughs> and, and happy belated birthday to everybody whose birthday is before today, and happy pre-birthday to everybody whose birthday is after yeah, this if, day. If you're a podcast <laughs> listener and you want to have your name, happy birthday on podcast, email widgets no, at thelekycauldron.com. No, <laughs> Don't email us. We officially wish everybody a happy birthday, okay? If you're a listener, you just got oh. happy birthday. Please don't email us and say my birthday uh. is August 22nd and I watched you and wish me a happy birthday that day. We appreciate it and we wish you a happy birthday, but we can't possibly do it. Oh, darn. John can do it. He'll make his own <laughs> podcast and it'll just be no, John actually, saying, singing happy birthday to every single person who has. <laughs> that would be awesome. <laughs> That'd be the most subscribed thing on, on iTunes ever. <laughs> 
Go ahead, I dare you. But you do have a great voice, but man, that'd be over and over. Boring. No, see, yeah, if you want if you want me to sing happy birthday, send me your birthday to newstips at modelnet.com. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll be good to every one of them. I'm leaving before this goes someplace that I know it's gonna go. I'm leaving. I'm get I'm getting out of Dodge. Yes. Uh, yep. Yep. Dodge it. Bye guys. Dodge it. Oh, and about time too. We've missed it. I confess myself disappointed. Now, if you two don't mind, I'm going to bed. Great Scott, no wonder. Look at the time. We've been here nearly four hours. Spooky how the time flies when one's having fun. <laughs> 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 <laughs>